Turn with me this morning to Luke 3. I regret a little bit uh, that there's uh, an extra week gap between last week's sermon and this week's sermon. Two weeks ago's sermon, I mean, as I was gone last week. Um, back in the midst of John the Baptist's message to Israel, uh, last time we were together, we talked about his message. We talked about um, this message of repentance uh, the baptism of repentance. We spoke of what repentance is. We spoke of what the baptism of repentance was. We recognize that it is not a baptism of salvation, but a baptism of repentance. We distinguish between those, what they are, what they aren't. We talked about John's ministry a little bit. We'll talk more about that next week. We dug into these things. We understood, and, and I want to keep bringing this up, that John as a prophet, was the prototypical Old Testament prophet. He was the essence of Old Testament law and prophets. He represented everything that the Old Testament was. And that's very important because he came declaring Christ. He came in deference to Christ. He came saying, don't look at me, look at Christ. Don't bother with me, bother with Christ. I'm just the messenger. And by John doing that, what he was effectively teaching us is that that was the Old Testament's purpose. That was the purpose of the Law and the Prophets. It was to point the way to Christ. It was to declare Christ. It was not an end of itself. It was a means to an end. It was the means by which the Jew was prepared, was to be prepared to receive with gladness the ministry of Messiah. The whole Old Testament points to the person and work of Jesus Christ so that Jesus can be expounded from any book of the Old Testament without fail. And I remind you of that. We'll kind of climax our thinking on that next week. But for today, let's dig into just a few verses, but a pretty deep concept that's going to come from these few verses. We begin today in Luke 3, verse 15, and the text tells us this. And as the people were in expectation, and all men mused in their hearts of John whether he were the Christ or not. John is in the wilderness baptizing people with a preparatory baptism of repentance. Not salvation, preparation. The law saves no one. It never has, it never will. But it was and is sufficient to show men their need for salvation to point the way to the law's fulfillment in Christ. And in verses uh, 10 through 14, John tells various people groups what they should do. If you recall from last time, He told them what they should do in preparation for Messiah, how they should bear the fruit of their repentance. He told the people that they should give of the surplus of what they have. If you have two coats, give one coat to someone else. He told the publicans that they should take no more than what is appointed to them. You have a certain percentage above the taxes of Rome that you're allowed to take for your own cut. Don't take any more than that. And then he told the soldiers that they should do no violence, that they should accuse no man falsely that they should be content with their wages. Plenty of areas wherein the soldiers could show their repentance uh, in the official capacity, in the duties that they had been given. And then in verse 15, we read this, this concept that as the people were in expectation, they began to wonder, they began to muse, they began to ponder whether this man was the Christ. Is John the Christ? In so many ways, John embodied everything that the Jews thought the Christ would be. He was a man of passion who called them to conform themselves 
to the essence of Old Testament law. That to them is everything that Christ would be. But John was about as clear as he can be that he is not the Christ. Look with me in verse 16. The Bible says, John answered saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. John's message is one of contrast. John is coming as a man and he's baptizing physically. He's baptizing with water. He immerses them in water to bring them back up, having washed themselves externally as a sign of inward cleansing, as a sign of inward association. But the washing of water does not and indeed cannot produce any sort of change. The washing of water itself does not produce change. Nor does this washing even guarantee that a change has taken place, that the heart is actually right. It's symbolic. It's associative. It's not an objective step of effect. It's a subjective step of association, of symbolism. But then John says, he says, there's one coming mightier than me, however, greater than I am. The concept of might relates to strength, but it does so in many different contexts. Might can speak of physical strength in the Bible. It could speak of spiritual strength. It could speak of effectiveness in a task. John tells them that his strength, his strength which was expressed in his ability to rally those in Israel unto an association with the law, unto a repentance and a reconfiguration of their hearts back to the essence of the law, which was to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and might, and to love thy neighbor as thyself. That is the essence of the law. The first five commandments being to love God, the second five commandments dealing with loving people, right? And as we consider the essence of the law, he had the ability to rally them around that, to call them back onto it. He says, but that might, that ability pales in comparison to the strength of the one who will come after me. John has the strength to compel action expressed through water baptism. But the one who would come after him, the Messiah, he would baptize not with water, not compelling them to dunk themselves in water and thus to come up with a renewed determination and association, but rather he would baptize with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And it's important for us to park on this phrase, baptized with the Holy Ghost and with fire. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is an often misunderstood concept, even within our own circles. We mentioned last time we were together the importance of understanding that the church began at Pentecost. There are many different theories as to when the church began. In covenant and reformed circles, they would say that the church has always been. That the church began effectively, I guess you could say, with Abraham or even with Adam and Eve. And the church has always been. That there's always been those believers and that, that the church as we talk about it today is just an extension of what there always was. And we talked a couple of weeks ago about why we, we don't recognize that to be the case. There are others that believe that the church began with John the Baptist. And uh, oftentimes they're in Baptist circles and they think John was the first Baptist and those sorts of things. Um, which... Uh, is is a, a theory that is out there as far as uh, those things go. However, John wasn't a Baptist, right? He was a baptizer. And the Baptist church would not begin for many 
uh, uh, many, many hundreds of years, uh, thousands of years, in fact, after Jesus Christ. And yet, the principles that John was espousing, and this is what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, were not the principles of the church. They were the principles of the law. It was not the principles of the New Testament church. It was the principles of, of Old Testament Judaism. John was not teaching the church. He was teaching the law. And so we would reject the concept that John started the church. And we recognize that, well, when, when would the church begin? Well, as you look at the character of the church, the character of the church revolves deeply around the Holy Spirit indwelling. And when did the Holy Spirit begin to indwell men unto uh, through belief? Well, it was at Pentecost. So we see the church as having begun at Pentecost. That's what we believe. Uh, if we muddy this concept, if we insist that the church either began with Adam and Eve or Abraham or, or um, began with John the Baptist, then the distinctives of the Holy Spirit's baptism will be lost. The distinctives of the baptism of the Holy Spirit will be muddied. When we consider the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it, it is the most evident function of the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has many functions in the life of a believer and in, in the lives of unbelievers. It, uh, John 16 tells us that the, in the lives of the unbelievers, the Holy Spirit convicts of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And yet, of all of these functions of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is perhaps the most evident. It's God's means of adding men and women to the broader body of Christ called the church. And when we speak of the church, we speak in two distinct concepts. There is the local church. This is the visible manifestation of the body of Christ, which God asks each of us to take part in for the practical outworking of the gospel of Jesus Christ into our communities and for the edification of the saints. So the local church is where we find fellowship, where we edify one another, and it's kind of the home base with which we go out into our communities and we reach others to, for, for Christ. We win them to Christ and then we add them to the church. We bring them into the church. It's the local chapter of a much broader organization, if we want to call it that. That is the local church. The local church is taught definitively in the New Testament. In fact, the word church itself is the word in the Greek ekklesia, meaning assembly. It was a word used well before the New Testament church to mean an assembly of people. You can't have an assembly of people if you're not assembling, right? And so the local church, the church by its definition is the con- has the concept of assembly. Uh, now this isn't a message on the church today, but it must be said because uh, with the proliferation of online church and online sermons and the ability to really get all of your, your teaching from other sources uh, other than your local church, uh, and then you have the other arm of the local church, oftentimes we would call it the charity line, uh, charity end of it being done by humanitarian aid and various social gospel groups. Many believers today feel as though the local church is optional. It is unnecessary. It is maybe a nice thing to have, but you, you don't really need one. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the local church is an imperative, important part of God's functioning. And to attempt to impose the greater body of believers called the church upon many of the teachings directed to the local church is to do disservice to what the Word of God is teaching. And really, it's it's a futile effort for the local church is everywhere in the New Testament. However, that being said, there is a broader church. 
oftentimes called the universal church, the mystical body, or the term that we prefer using at the Legacy Baptist Church, we call it the prospective church. The church that is made up of all men, women, everyone who has accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, who is indwelled by the Holy Spirit of every generation, will meet together one day in heaven. This this church, this broader church, in, in, in oftentimes in conservative theological circles, is completely discounted as not really being taught in the New Testament at all. It's there, but it's just in the future. There's not really any function to the broader church until the end. I would take issue with that as well. I think that there's a concept of the broader church that we find taught in Scripture. I think we find it in Ephesians. I think we find it in Philippians. And one of the biggest reasons why the doctrine of the church, at the broader church, the universal church, the mystical body, the, the prospective church, one of the reasons why we can't just discount the function of the broader church in this age is because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This doctrine of the Holy Spirit's indwelling. If we discount the existence of a greater body of believers which transcends the local church, we run the risk of minimizing the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I think this is perhaps what we are tempted to do in certain conservative circles is because we, we, we reject the, the concept that there is a broader church uh, in certain circles, we have also lost some of the effect of understanding the baptism of the Holy Spirit. As it relates to the Spirit's baptism, there are two primary divine functions. The first is spiritual association. The baptism of the Holy Spirit spiritually associates us with the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Secondly, the baptism of the Holy Spirit joins us to that broader body of Christ called the church, that prospective, universal church. And if we lose sight of the fact that there is a broader church, then we might very well lose, fat, lose sight of the proper understanding of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In relation to the spiritual association, in other words, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit associates us with the death and the resurrection of Christ, we read this in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 3. Paul says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Here we find Paul speaking of baptism as a means of spiritual association with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You say, well, pastor, how do you know that this is not speaking of water baptism? Because quite often when pastors baptize people physically, water baptize people, they quote this verse. As a matter of fact, I often do as well. Buried with him by baptism into death and raised to walk in newness of life, right? That we, we hear that all the time. So how do we know that this is not speaking only of water baptism? That this is actually not a concept that happens at water baptism? Well, several reasons. In Acts chapter 8 and in Acts 10, we find that the Holy Spirit falls upon men prior to their baptism. That the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And of course, in the book of Acts, we see that transitory time when the Holy Spirit would fall on them, they would speak in tongues, 
Uh, they would show the evident signs of the Spirit falling upon them. And as they did so, this was prior to their baptism. And we see that very clearly. Even in our passage in Luke 3, John contrasts water baptism. He says, I come bringing a water baptism, but the baptism that Messiah is bringing is a spiritual baptism. There will be a spiritual association. And so we see the spiritual emphasis there. As a matter of fact, Jesus baptized no one. If you read in the Scriptures, you'll find that Jesus did not baptize. There were those that baptized in Jesus' name, but Jesus baptized no one Himself probably because he didn't want to muddy those waters. So here we see the baptism of the Spirit being a baptism which associates us with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. That when the Spirit baptizes us, we are thus linked to Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, and the blessings found in it. Our second passage, however, shows us that spiritual baptism also joins us to the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 14, we read, For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. For the body is not is not one member, but many. So we find that the Spirit of God baptizes us in association with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but we also find that the Spirit of God baptizes us into a body, one body, with many members. And this is why, consequently, we believe water baptism is the ordinance of the local church. Why is it that we believe water baptism ought to be done under the authority of a local church. Well, just as spiritual baptism joins us to the broader church, that under the authority of God, the Spirit of God baptizes us into the one body that is the church, so too as we follow the example of the early church in water baptism as that physical sign of that inward association, it would follow that the local chapter of that broader church should be involved in the water baptism that reflects outwardly, materially, the inward change of the spirit baptism into the broader church. I hope that makes sense. Now, that doesn't mean, this this doesn't mean that if you get baptized outside the authority of the local church or if you were to get baptized in one church uh, and then move to another church or, or any of those particular uh, scenarios that you'd have to get rebaptized every time. It doesn't mean that. Uh, baptism is an outward sign, not, not efficacious. It's an outward sign of an inward change. It's, it's meant to declare publicly what we have done uh, as far as choosing to follow Christ. It doesn't have to be redone over and over again every time we would change a church or because we weren't baptized in, in the same denomination or whatever the case may be. However, the reason why we believe that the local church ought to have authority over that baptism, why it's an ordinance of the local church, is because that best reflects the model that we see here. Broad church, universal church, baptism of the Spirit. Local church, water baptism. And this leads us to the natural question. When does the baptism of the Holy Spirit take place? Again, this is a concept that's filled with controversy in the church. 
An overemphasis of water baptism has led some to believe that at the point of water baptism is the point of spiritual baptism. So literally, spiritual baptism and water baptism are one and the same. Certain groups use this to claim that if you've not submitted to their baptism, then it's invalid. Catholic Church, Landmark Baptists, various other groups, they believe if you haven't submitted to their baptism, then you haven't actually been baptized. That's because they believe that water baptism and spirit baptism are one and the same. Charismatic denominations oftentimes believe spirit baptism to be after salvation, subsequent to salvation. So you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, and then there is a second blessing, they call it, or a second spiritual baptism. The first baptism, some, some believe it's, there's one, some believe there's two. Oftentimes, if there's a second blessing idea, they believe that there's a second spiritual baptism. The first one, associating the believer with Christ and His church. The second one, associating only with those believers who go on to receive a special empowerment, a special endowment of the power and experience through the Spirit, oftentimes manifest through what we would call the sign gifts. Speaking in tongues, prophecy, healing, and the like. We've talked about that before. We've talked about why we don't regard the sign gifts as being valid for this age. When we get there, we'll talk about that again. And we'll go through all of those proofs. If you want to hear those messages, when I preached through my series on in 1 Corinthians, I spent time explicitly talking about our position on the sign gifts, where we stand, and why we stand there. I would encourage you to go back and listen to those messages in 1 Corinthians. They'll be on the website, LegacyBaptistChurch.net. Um, so as we consider these different concepts, the one end which says water baptism and spirit baptism are the same, the other end which says you get saved and then there is a second blessing whereby you receive an empowerment or an endowment of the spirit afterwards, um, we find no, no precedent for this in the Bible that there's two spirit baptisms, that there are two separate times. In fact, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6 tell us There is one body, one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. One baptism. And of course, this is speaking of the spiritual, not the physical. You could get dunked every week if you want physically, but that's not going to change the fact that there's only one spiritual baptism. And that is what we are seeking to discern. When does that baptism take place? I reference you back to Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. We've read these two verses already. And these two verses tell us that at the moment of the Spirit's baptism, we are not just placed into His death and His resurrection, but what? We are raised to walk in newness of life. We are placed into His death, and then we are raised to walk in newness of life. That at the moment of the Spirit's baptism, there is a... And a, and a resurrection, if you will, a spiritual resurrection into a new life. And this is important for us. When we seek to discern when the spirit baptism takes place, it is at a point when we are raised to walk in newness of life. Paul uses this very concept of being raised to walk in newness of life as the basis for his argument about why Christians should live righteous lives. This is Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. If we continue in verses 7, 12, and 19, we read this. Verse 7, For he that is dead is freed from sin. Verse 12, 
Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Verse 19, Paul says, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. So Paul says, you were baptized with him, uh, um, excuse me, you were um, buried with him by baptism into death, and then you were raised to walk in newness of life. And then all of Romans 6 is saying, because you're raised to walk in newness of life, because you have this new nature in Christ, live like it, right? Walk in it. You're, you're, you're dead to sin, you're alive to Christ, so because you're alive to Christ, because you're this new creature, live like it. So Paul associates the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the new nature being given. And that new nature being given with the capacity that a believer has to overcome sin and to do what is right. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us this. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We become a new creation the moment we're placed into Christ. So when are we placed into Christ? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Trace these steps back with me. We're created in Christ Jesus the moment we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior by grace through faith. Right? If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away, all things are become new. You're a new creation the moment you're placed into Christ, which is that salvation. Go back one step further. The capacity that we have to overcome sin is by being made a new creation and thus we walk in that newness. Go back one step further. We are baptized into the Holy Spirit and made a new creation. So when does the baptism of the Holy Spirit happen? The moment we accept Christ as our Savior. has to be. Because that's the moment that we're made a new creation in Christ. Baptism of the Holy Spirit happens at the moment of salvation. That's what the Scriptures tell us. The one-time spirit baptism, right? There's one baptism, takes place at the moment of salvation. The moment that you put your full faith and trust in Jesus Christ to be saved. 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 21 tells us, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So as Peter describes our salvation from God's great judgment, he uses the ark and and Noah, and he says here that baptism saves us. But it's the same baptism that Noah went through. 
And as we think of Noah's baptism, uh, the one thing we do know is that it wasn't by water. It was through water, but not by water, right? He didn't get dunked. As a matter of fact, he was one of the only guys that didn't get dunked, right? Everyone else got dunked. Peter says it wasn't the putting away of the filth. It isn't the putting away of the filth of the flesh that saves us. It's not getting into water that cleans off our flesh. It's the answer of a good conscience toward God. That's the baptism that saves us. The same baptism that saved Noah, the baptism of him stepping through the door of the ark and God closing that door behind him, the baptism of faith. That's the baptism that saves us. That's the baptism of the Spirit. That's the point in which we are sealed with the Spirit when we exercise faith unto God. Water didn't save Noah. The ark saved Noah. And the ark was built by faith, was stepped into by faith. The faith of Noah and his family. Stepping into the ark, God closed the door. That's what saved Noah. That was the baptism. The picture of salvation by baptism cannot be the water, for indeed water was not the baptism. I mean, water was not the salvation. It must be the ark. Salvation by faith. And as it was in Noah's day, so too is it in ours. Baptism of the Spirit happens at the moment of salvation. So, John's speaking to the multitude and he says, there's coming one, I'm not worthy to even unloose his shoe and he will baptize you not with water, but with the Holy Ghost and with fire. What, so we talked about baptism of the Holy Ghost. What about this baptism with fire? Again, there's no consensus as to what this means. Those who regard the baptism with fire as a baptism separate from the baptism of the Holy Ghost would see the baptism with fire as the judgment of God at the end of the world. The judgment upon the nations. That He'll baptize some with the Holy Ghost and those that aren't baptized with the Holy Ghost are baptized with fire. Right? So, Holy Ghost baptism is salvation. Fire baptism is judgment. You're either one or you're the other. And if, if we take the view that they're two different baptisms, then that makes a lot of sense. However, I don't know that they're two different baptisms. And the reason is a textual reason. In the King James Version, we see the preposition with twice. Baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. That leads us to believe or leads us to, to feel like they're two different baptisms, right? Because there's preposition is used twice. With the Holy Ghost, with fire. But in the, in the Greek, it's not used twice. The preposition is only used once. If we were going to more literally translate it, it would look like this. And he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. And when you see only one preposition in the original languages, you begin to get the feeling that perhaps, the, and, and, and interpretively, it's less likely that it's two baptisms and more likely that it's speaking of one and the same baptism. And if we consider them one in the same baptism, then we know that that is not judgment in the sense of the end of the world, right? Because we're not going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and then go through all of God's judgment as well. That's that's inconsistent with what God would teach about the purpose of judgment. And so this has led to a couple of other interpretations. The first uh, one perhaps the most accessible, has led people to believe that this fire is the cloven tongues of fire that rested over the disciples when on the day of Pentecost the Holy Spirit fell on them and then above them were cloven tongues of fire. And so that would be perhaps the most natural interpretation of the concept. 
But, but there's another concept that I would like to point you to that I believe is more natural still. When we consider the Jewishness of this promise, right? This is John the Baptist, the Old Testament prophet. He doesn't even fully understand the ministry of Messiah. In just a couple of weeks, Jesus is going to be ministering and John the Baptist is going to send his disciples to Jesus and say, hey, are, are you even Messiah? So John the Baptist doesn't even understand the fullest extent of what Jesus is going to do and how he's going to do it, right? And John is saying here, I, I know something, that when Messiah comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. What would most naturally John be thinking of as he is making this promise of the Holy Ghost and fire if they are indeed one baptism? Well, the picture of fire in the mind of the Old Testament Jew, which is the context within which we must think here, is going to be that of purification or judgment. And the most natural verse that links the ministry of John the Baptist to purification and fire is Malachi 3. And in Malachi 3, we read this. Behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. That would be John, right? That would be John the Baptist. That's the messenger that was sent to prepare the way for the Lord. I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, the one who will bring the covenant, that would be Jesus, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts, but who may abide in the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. And I will come near to you to judgment and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against false swearers and against those that oppress the hirelings and his wages, the widows and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right. And fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts, for I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Do you see the parallels between that and what John is saying here? John saying, Jesus, the Messiah is going to come, the messenger of the covenant is going to come and purify his people. He's coming to purify baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. He is coming to purify, to take the hypocrites out. And this is the exact thing that John is saying, right? Come and be baptized unto repentance for the remission of sins. Come and declare your alignment with Messiah. Bring forth fruit, meet unto repentance. Do the things that are right. Because when Messiah comes, He's going to refine you. He is going to bring about an understanding. He is going to purge His floor. He is going to take that which is right and take that which is wrong and make a clear distinction between the two. You won't be able to play games with Him. You won't be able to to be hypocritical with Him. Your religion is not going to cut it. Because He's going to see your heart. When John declares that this baptism of fire would would be accompanied by the Holy Ghost, he was showing the very thing that all of the Old Testament had promised. That God was going to take away their stony hearts. That He was going to give them a heart of flesh. That He was going to supernaturally give them the ability from the inside out to obey God. And He proves to them 
that he is not the Messiah by reminding these men that the whole Old Testament preached that Messiah would come as a messenger of the covenant to purge his floor. He was not coming to bring about physical or moral change by external means. He wasn't just coming to do a water baptism to wash away the filth of the flesh. He was coming to bring about a physical and a moral change by internal means. He was coming to baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. To look at you from the inside and to baptize with the Holy Ghost to purge His floor to separate the sheep from the goats. And this was the essence of John's message to the Jews as a warning that they would not simply think that they're okay because they are Jews. That they would not simply think they are okay because they're religious people. And this is heightened by John's continued warning in verse 17 of John of Luke 3. Verse 17, John says, whose fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. The fan being spoken of there was was a winnowing fan or a winnowing fork. The winnowing process seeks to separate the grain itself from the chaff that was around the grain. It is an outer a protective layer. They would take a winnowing fan or a winnowing fork and they would toss the grain into the air and as the wind would blow by it, the wind would take the chaff and blow it away and then the grain, which is heavier, would remain. And as that heavy grain remained, eventually you do this for long enough and you've only got the grain and all the chaff is blown away. And then they would sweep up the chaff and they'd throw it into the fire. And then they'd take the grain and they'd put it into the barn. And that's the idea here. John says, and this is an extremely Jewish promise, a Jewish warning here. The Holy Ghost and with fire, it's a Jewish warning that he's coming and he is going to purge his floor. He's going to winnow. He's going to take that fan, he's going to toss that stuff up in the air, and the chaff is going to blow away and only the grain is going to come into the barn. This is the picture given of God's actions through Messiah. He will gather the wheat into his garner. That's an old word for a storehouse. The chaff will be thrown into the fire. The judgment of God will fall upon those who, having been a part of the nation of Israel, having had every spiritual advantage, fail to follow God in obedience. And this would be known. Who, how would they know whether or not they were the chaff or the grain? Whether or not they follow Messiah. That will make the difference. Now we stop there for today, as far as the expounding of the text is concerned. We'll pick up there next week with one more message from Luke 3. But as we close, as we always seek to do, I'd like to take a time to to apply this to our lives in a couple of ways. And again, this was a very academic message, so the application is perhaps going to feel a little bit um, of a different direction from the teaching. But application number one, know this, first of all, a faithful minister ought always and exclusively exalt Christ. A faithful minister ought always and exclusively exalt Christ. John the Baptist was a man of tremendous spiritual giftedness and blessing. There had not been a prophet unto whom the Lord had spoken in 450 years since the time of Malachi. He was the forerunner of Messiah. He was the one who would make the path straight. 
Spiritually speaking, and we'll consider this more in depth later, John is one of the most important men in the history of the world. And when the people sought to give him credit, to give him honor, to, to turn uh, to him honor, maybe this is our Messiah, maybe we should follow this guy, let's, let's become John's disciples. John says, no, wait. I'm just the messenger. In light of the one who is coming after me, I am nothing. I am unworthy even to unloose the shoe of the man who will come after me. John existed as a minister for one purpose, and that was to exalt Christ. And this, this not only ought to be, but indeed must be the legacy of every minister of the gospel. In every age, as you look at ministers, as you consider ministers, as you see ministers, as you interact with ministers, as ministers live and minister to you, the legacy of the minister must be that of exalting Christ exclusively. Unfortunately, however, this is often not the case, and for many reasons. As I say this, uh, please don't see this point as some sort of us versus them Everybody but me sort of a point. That's not what I'm saying here. Uh, When we say there are many reasons why ministers fail to exalt Christ, every reason is a failure, but not every failure makes a man a bad man. Anyone in this room who is human knows how easy it is to lose focus or to fall into sin. And particularly the sin of pride. There's many a good minister who has become susceptible to the notion that he is something special or someone worthy of honor either of his own mouth or of the mouths of others. And this does not make him a bad man or or even an unfaithful minister. But for the moments that he indulges this attitude of pride, he is without question being a bad minister. As Peter writes to the dispersion scattered throughout the known world. In First Peter, he says this in chapter 5, verses 1-4. through 4. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being ensamples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Peter tells the elders here, uh, who he says are responsible to feed, that's the word in the Greek, pastor, uh, the flock of God, and to oversee them, that's the word in the Greek, bishop, and elders, the word presbyter, so all three of them speak of the same person here, that there's a specific manner in which they're to minister. He is to ask God's people to follow him, not to expect God's people to follow him. He is to serve, not for money, but for God. He is to lead by example, not by expectation. He's not entitled to be led, to be followed. You don't owe anything to me because I'm a pastor. You don't owe me your allegiance. You don't owe me your loyalty. You don't owe me your obedience. You don't owe me anything. I am an under-shepherd. I am a man ordained by God to lead this group of people unto Christ. You owe Him your allegiance. You owe Him your obedience. You owe Him your loyalty. 
The Bible says that the elder which rules well is worthy of a double honor, especially them that labor and word and in doctrine. But this honor is not his to expect or to demand of God's people. This honor is earned through faithfulness. It's reaped in generosity. And it's only truly realized at the appearing of Christ. John the Baptist was a faithful minister. A man consumed with the glory of Christ, of Messiah, in all things. Now, now I first spoken close to home. The kind of ministers who maybe lose focus a little bit or get a little bit self-entitled, and that's something that can easily be done. Men of Orthodox churches at some time, for some reason, decided that they were worthy of some personal attention or personal exaltation and received this attention with gladness, and, and, and yet they seek to still preach and honor the Word of God. These are men who are flawed, but they love God, and they've only lost focus. But we certainly see in the world today a vast number of self-proclaimed ministers who do what they do specifically for exaltation, right? This is a whole different group of men. These are men whose messages are filled with intentional error, whose lives are filled with material excess. Jesus calls these wolves in sheep's clothing. Paul calls them those who depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits, men who are deceiving and being deceived. These are men and women who are unfaithful ministers, whose whole object in ministry is self-exaltation. And in the case of these men and women, we would do well to heed the advice of Paul that from such we should turn away. That's a whole different realm. That's the health and wealth. That's those that are in it for the money, for the fame, for the power. From those turn away. Second point, and this will be our final point this morning. First, the faithful minister ought always and exclusively to exalt Christ. It's, it's imperative. Secondly, morality and religion are no substitute for genuine faith. I think we've hit this one in many different ways from many different angles over many different weeks now. But let's hit it again. Morality and religion are no substitute for genuine faith. The message of John the Baptist was a message sent to the Jews. We considered last time his message to the people that God could of the stones, of the very stones that were lying around, make children unto Abraham and considered carefully that the spiritual advantage does not imply spiritual success, right? That, that just because we have a spiritual advantage, such as those that were Jews and those that were the lineage of Abraham or those of you who have had great families and have grown up in church and who have been around the teaching of God's word, that spiritual advantage that you have does not mean that you will be spiritually successful in your life. But we must dig deeper. Yes, your spiritual advantages due to heritage or your church uh, do not secure for you spiritual success. But in our circles, the problem is far less that we feel our parents and our church are securing for us a spiritual success. That's a big deal in the liturgical denominations. Catholic and Lutheran, they feel like because they're connected to their church, they automatically have a one-up because they had, they went through their confirmation and catechisms and because they were infant baptized that they automatically have a leg up. That, that, that's more often felt, or pastors, children, those sorts of things, that's more often felt in those circles. In our circles, our bigger problem, I would say, personal opinion, is that we feel our morality and our religion secure for us spiritual success. That because we put on a tie on Sunday, or because we know what to say or how to say it, 
because we do certain things and don't do other things, because we have disciplined ourselves in certain ways, that that makes us godly. We erect in our lives these strong standards which in themselves are not wrong. In fact, they're very good and necessary. We have places we won't go. We have things we won't do. We, we, we interpret this, however, as godliness. And that's where things can become dangerous. We know how to act when we're around those who care. And we care. But in the secret places of our own hearts, things are a bit different. We often consider ourselves in light of the world around us. When confronted with various situations... If we look at the world around us, our actions might be different from the world, but is our heart? Would our appearance or actions look anything different from the world around us if everyone could see our hearts? We often say, well, because I respond differently to the world physically, that we're godly. But the question is, are we responding differently than the world spiritually? Internally. The question of what, externally, what would we do differently if, from what we do to what the world does, that, that question solves itself. That problem solves itself if we consider the internal. The question we ought to ask is, when confronted with various situations, does our heart look or act any different than the world, than the hearts of the world around us? We look the part. We act the part, but do our hearts harbor the same pride, same bitterness, same contempt, same judgmentalism as the world around us? Do we truly respond to situations in faith or just in morality and religion? Do we seek to please God in what we do or do we seek to exalt our own perceived righteousness by doing things different than the world around us? Just as a minister can pursue self-exaltation in ministry, every believer can fall into the trap of self-righteous religiosity or moralism. You are not good because of the things you do. You are not good because of the things you do. You are good because of the things that Christ has done for you. Your capacity to please God is rooted in only one thing. Hebrews 11.6 But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. The only actions which please God are actions done in faith. Likewise, your capacity to deny the flesh is rooted in only one thing. Galatians 5.16 This I say then, walk in the Spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You can have a disciplined life. You can discipline your life into moral actions And plenty of religions have done that, right? The Mormons have done that. They have disciplined their life into religious actions. They deny Christ. They deny who He is. They deny what He has done. It's hard to even imagine that they could find Christ within the, the, the umbrella of the Mormon faith. There are certain other faiths that tend to be very legalistic where you could say, well, they might at least find Christ somewhere in there. Hard to say with with Mormons. And yet they are extremely moral people. They deny Christ's deity, but perhaps are the most moral among us. How do they do it? 
Well, they've disciplined their flesh. And the flesh is willing to be disciplined. It has no problem being disciplined as long as it can be alive. The flesh is fine being disciplined as long as you don't kill it. As long as you aren't dead to it and it dead to you. As long as it's not destroyed. As long as it's not denied. It's happy to be disciplined. In our Christian circles, we have all sorts of outlets for our flesh. Enabling us to discipline it but not destroy it. We look good on the outside but do so with pride in our hearts. The flesh has been disciplined but not destroyed. We don't argue with others but we harbor unforgiveness against them and gossip about them behind their backs. The flesh has been disciplined but not destroyed. We judge others' actions but even more so their intentions. We've disciplined the flesh but not destroyed it. We think that we are godly because we don't watch things or don't say things, but our free time is still given to waste. We've disciplined the flesh, but we've not destroyed it. These are all still the flesh. It's still there. And the flesh is willing to be disciplined as long as it's not destroyed. John's message was this. He came to a moral culture and told them that their morality wasn't enough to please God. He came to a religious culture and told them that their religion was not enough to please God. And then Christ came and told them exactly what it takes to please God. Him. And believing on His message. Change from the inside out. A start with a life of faith. And then let all of that external stuff fall into place. Because it will if you're walking by faith. The fruit born of the Spirit of God within us will bear out unto those things, those right external actions, as long as we've got the heart right first. And this is the message that is for each of us. For indeed, there is not one of us that is immune to the dangers of religiosity and moralism. And the more conservative we find ourselves, the more likely it is that we, or the generation that will follow us, will fall into the ease of disciplining our flesh rather than destroying our flesh. John the Baptist made the same call which we must make today, that we would search our own hearts and know whether our motivation for our actions is driven by our flesh, which has been disciplined, or driven by the Spirit through spiritual submission. And it's not a mystery to know which it is but it can only be known by you. Since we can discipline our flesh into looking right, since we can be motivated to do moral things by our flesh, only you and God can truly know if the things that you're doing which are right morally, which are right religiously, are right before God, spiritually. Are they the outworking of the lust of your flesh or the outworking of the fruit of the Spirit? Only you can know that. Only you can know whether or not you're bearing the fruit of the Spirit or you're playing a game. And you do, because the Spirit will will make that known to you. And so that's the call today, is to search the Spirit of God. Are you a moral person, a religious person, or are you a spiritual person? There's a difference. As we close today, let's just remind ourselves of what that spiritual fruit is. Galatians 5.22 This is the fruit of the Spirit. 
This is what will come out of you as you submit yourself to the Spirit of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. You may not be doing something that is uh, unacceptable by church standards, but are you intemperate in it? Are you out of balance? Look for the flesh somewhere in there then. Because the fruit of the Spirit is temperance. You might have said all the right things when that person hurt you, but inside you're angry and you're bitter and you're resentful and you're unforgiving. Then there's the flesh somewhere. No matter what you can discipline your flesh into doing when you're face-to-face with that person, if that's what's in your heart, there's the flesh somewhere. Find it. Root it out. Be spiritual, not just moral. Be spiritual, not just religious. Gentle. Good. Faith. Is this what defines your day-in, day-out actions? Is this what defines what you do, what you don't do? Or is it just, who will see me? What will they think? Well, then there's the flesh somewhere in there. Let's be spiritual, not just religious. Let's close in prayer.